because of because he stayed with George. When 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 Glenn did leave and was going to go solo, you know, with, with mutiny and all, George George didn't want that, you know, and and actually tried to you know tried to convince him not to, and you know, and he was and he was saying and and Glenn told me Glenn said you know, when George found out about the mutiny thing, George he said George told me Glenn, look. I mean, you you know you can do you can do what you want to do, but if you do that, he said I'm going to have to go against you. Now, Glenn said he didn't exactly know what George meant when he when he said that, but I I I just take it to to me. I think it meant the same thing that it meant when when he pulled back the Brides of Funkenstein when they now he George George formed the group, right? Formed Brides of Funkenstein, but then when they started to get notoriety and then when they started to get some some play. He pulled him back, you know, and, you know, and, and, and it's, it's so because he didn't he didn't want them to leave because that was a part of his thing. And I think that would probably would have been the same thing that happened with Glenn. Glenn would have only went so far. And I think Glenn knew that if, if he, you know, I mean, because George, I mean, especially at that time, George had a lot of pull. He had a lot of clout, you know, uh, he had a lot of ways to stop a lot of things from happening. And and Glenn, you know, and Glenn's not stupid, you know. I, I think he knows that, and uh, you know, I, so. Well, that that friction certainly uh, came center stage on this record with all of the uh, the meeting on the mama ship and uh, yeah, yeah, all but the I, uh, right. But I'll tell you, but I, I'll tell you one thing about that. Now, Jerome, um, I mean, I love Jerome. I really do. Uh, but there's two things. First of all, Mutiny, as as Jerome, as the, like the, the, that record and the other rec Mutiny records that followed, was not the concept that Glenn had for that band. It wasn't. It wasn't. Now I'm telling you some inside stuff here. Now I don't know if you. <laughs> if you hey, this is truth and rhythm, baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. So you know, that was not the concept that Glenn had for that band. Because I have I I have recorded because I was you know I was gonna work I was gonna work with Glenn with Mutiny also, and I have recordings I have things that that Glenn wanted to use wanted wanted to re, wanted to use for Mutiny, and it's that is not that it is not that kind I mean there'll be funk yes I mean there will be there would be, but there was just going to be a whole lot of other things going on, you know like like. Uh, because Glenn, Glenn was a lover of like Steely Dan. He loved those guys. He had, he had. There, there were, there were tunes that that Glenn had written that were. I mean, I, I, that not necessarily like Steely Dan, but I'm talking about as far as the musicianship. He was going to expand the whole, the whole musical thing, and that's one of the reasons that I, I always wondered how, how, it, like after the Funkatelki album, had Glenn stayed and Jerome stayed and all that, how, how musically that would have happened because I. I know what what kind of stuff that Glenn Glenn had in his head that he was doing. I have recordings of that stuff. There was stuff that we started recording that Glenn wanted to do. And Jerome, okay, now look, Jerome is, is only able to do what he's able to do. You know, Jerome is not a writer. You know, he's not really that much of a writer. He's not, you know, he's not really a singer, whatever. You know, I mean, great great funk drummer, but you know, to tell you the truth, Glenn and I had conversations about. Jerome and Mutiny, and how Glenn really hadn't planned to use Jerome for Mutiny, 
except for maybe uh, you know a couple of things that Jerome is good at, like you know funk, some heavy funk stuff. But he wasn't going to be the drummer in Mutiny because he didn't feel that Jerome had like the sensitivity to do like ballady stuff that Glenn wanted to do, you know. And you know, I mean, that's how he that's how he felt. You know what I mean? I don't know if Glenn. I mean, I don't know if Jerome ever knew that, but but that's that's how, and 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 I and I just think that that Jerome should have given Glenn more props as far as mutiny was concerned. Because, you know, you know, Jerome kind of turned it into his band and like made it think like it was it was his idea. I you know, I mean I mean I, but I mean I mean admittedly I don't know how much how much he touted it as you know as all his idea. I don't know. I, but I, I just think that, especially on the album and as far as credits and stuff, I think that he should have given Glenn a little more, you know, a, li a little more credit, you know, since Mutiny was going to be, was his, was his concept originally, so. But, you know, I mean, you know, you know, it, it is what it is. I mean, uh, Jerome was able to, to, to have some, have some success doing, doing it that way, but, and and I and and you know I played and, and my own section played on, on you know on all of that and, and from that came came chops horns you know I mean but um, yeah I mean yeah right and I, I you know played on 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 the stuff but I but I had my doubts as far as exactly how long uh how long it could, it could go on you know I, you know you know only. Only because you know, I know that Jerome was a little, little limited musically, with what he was doing, with it. But you know, like I said, I mean, you know, Jerome did, 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 you know, did what he did. He made something out of it, and he, 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 he took it. You know, Jerome took it as far as as he could. You know, musically, which is what anybody, you know, which is the, you know, what you could ask of anybody. You know, just do, you know, the best that you could do with with what it is. You know, but it wasn't the original concept. I, that's that's basically what it is. It, you know, Glenn had a, a very far-reaching musical concept that he wanted to put forth. You know, mm -hmm. but it's not a musical concept that I think that that Jerome could really do. You know, go as far with. I mean, for obvious reasons, it's not his fault. I mean, the, the Glenn and Jerome are two different people. You know, everybody has their abilities. You know, but you know, and that's 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 my story, and I'm sticking to it. That's the, <laughs> That's the truth in rhythm right there. Yeah, there you go. There are some great uh, funk cuts, though, on here. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, immediately, I always liked the groove of Lump. Um, yeah. And then I was really surprised when I saw that Al Pacino movie that was so controversial around that time, uh, Cruising, I think it was. And that song was prominent in that movie. Oh, because I thought I thought it was... Oh, okay, I, I, I always thought it was... Uh, I don't know, for some reason I thought it was Dog Day Afternoon, but I guess you know, nope. it, it was it was cruising. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I was out, you know, movie. Yeah, and, and the, the groove and lump was was really not, and I wanted I wanted to put I wanted I wanted to write a horn arranger for that. You know, the, the my favorite my favorite mutiny tune out of all of them is uh is Burning. It's the song Burning on the on the first album. Burning up. Burning up, yeah. Yeah, that's my favorite. That's my favorite too. And, I, and you know, I like I like the arrangement that I wrote on it, and I like the groove of it. Uh, that's that's my favorite. That's my favorite too. And uh, <laughs> well, no, that one and um, 
Funk plus the one. Yeah, that's a good one. You were on the second one too? Yeah. Uh, Semi first class seat. That was that, you know, when you talk about maybe the limited focus of mutiny, I thought that, you know, that was an example of a track that was taking it somewhere else. Right. Yeah, that's true. You're right. You're right. You're right. Uh, yeah. And you're right. It did. It took took it past just a just a funk groove. You know, it, it, it did. It did. And you toured with them, too? Uh, I only did, I only did like, um, I only did like maybe two gigs with them. I only did like two gigs. Um, and um, I think it was, you know, they didn't use the horns for budget reasons. Uh, but um, I only did like two, maybe, you know, two gigs with them. And then uh, you're also on this one, but did you actually... Uh, go back, or this was just the tracks you had done when you were there. That th those th th uh, those tracks were done before I got with people. When when I when we I first went to LA and contacted Fred, and that that was that you know there and and the uh, Brides of Funkenstein uh, stuff. I mean, and, and I don't even you know I didn't even know the names of these tunes. I mean, it, you know, I mean, because uh, George just put up this track and said, "Play here, you play there." You know, and I, I didn't know the names of them. And, you know, and then, um, and, you know, the only reason I even know about them is uh, is because of my brother. <laughs> because of Steve. I, you know, I mean, you know, I, I, you know, like I said, I didn't know the names of them. I didn't know what George was going to use them for or anything. And I mean, you know, and I mean, at this time I had just, I had just met George, you know, I mean, you know, because at the concert, at the concert, you know, when we when when we me and the trombone player first played with Fred, I, I didn't meet George, you know I didn't, you know I, I he he wasn't in the dressing room or if he was he didn't say anything, but but you know first time I met George was when we first first uh, got with got with P Funk, so like you know I, I didn't know what George was going to use these tracks for he just held them. It's interesting that. That those tracks ended up being on the final Parliament album. I mean, they put another one out last year, not quite the same, but you know, the last real Parliament album in 1980, when you had recorded them before uh, three other records of theirs, uh, Funk and Teleki, Motor Booty Affair, and Glory Hell Stupid. Yeah, it's yeah, and uh, it, but you know, that's but see, but I, I, I expect that because. Because of the way that George uh, records, because George he records everything, everything. He does. He does. He's, he's, the, the record button is never off. It's never off. It, it's 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 always on. And and so, you know, and and it's the same thing. Uh, I guess he take takes a page out of uh, out of like the Rolling Stones. Rolling Stones are the same way where they have Rolling Stones have a have like. Uh, they they have like uh, like at the time that when when I, when I did those recordings they had about they had about six hundred songs in the can. You know, I mean they might have not not all completed, you know pieces here pieces there, but you know they do they kind of and you know they kind of do what strikes their fancy, and then and George he does this, he does the same thing you know he does the same thing I, on the Rolling the Rolling Stones Rolling Stones recording. There was a song that they called the Christmas issue, right? Now, uh, they uh, 
this was a song that uh, uh, that they, they were going to record, but then Jagger changed, changed his mind. He was going to put a vocal on it. He changed his mind, and he said, just for the hell of it, he put he put when we were there, he put it on the, he put it on the machine. He said, listen, uh, I'm going to play this track. Just just make up a horn. Just make up a horn. Uh, just make up a horn part. Make up a horn part. So they put the track. We made up a horn parts for it, right? And um, and then they put it away, right? So now this track, I don't know if it ever. I have the track the, the, that we, you know, it, it's just because it's an instrumental track. You know, it has it has horn, you know the horn parts. My horn section, we made up horn parts, and you know, I have the track. It's just their, their rhythm section, my horn section playing. Um, whether that song will ever see the light of day or whatever they're gonna do with it, who knows? But it's just, but but George does the same thing, you know. He says, "I'm gonna put a track, play this, play that, play here, play there," and then he puts it away, and then and and he'll pull it up, you know, for whatever reason, you know. I mean, Prince does the same thing, man. You know, they all, they, you know, this, this just happens to be the way they operate. You know? Yeah, Pr Prince definitely. Um, but usually he'll he would um, update it though. When he would finally yeah yeah right yeah. yeah yeah well that's the thing I mean if you're gonna use it then they gotta you know they gotta update it you know I mean people work different ways you know Alicia Keys she doesn't do that well I'm surprised to hear you say the Stones because they put out such limited uh, studio releases you know yeah yeah I know I know and and it's you know it's it's you know it's 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 something you know. I mean, Stevie Wonder's got Stevie Wonder's got a backlog of songs. I don't know how many songs, but you know. Uh, man, I would love for that vault to be uh, <laughs> yeah, opened right. up sometime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would, I, I would have loved to. I mean, I, I only, I've only performed with performed with Stevie Wonder. You know, me and my horn section, like maybe three times, but never recorded with him. I would love to record with him. Yeah, I just hope we get another record from him. I think it's been now. I don't know. This is the '90s, um, no, 2005. I think was his last record. But that was like 10 years, you know. But in the last uh, 20 years, he's only put out like one record. Yeah, but but you know, but but he being at who he is, he, he doesn't have to. <laughs> well, do it for us, man. Do it for yeah, us. right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, let's keep uh, going. How did you um, become involved with Sugar Hill? Okay, uh, my father uh, knew, uh, like I said, my you know he my father he was a tap dancer and you know he was into jazz and stuff, and um, my father knew a uh, an organist named Jiggs Chase, and um, uh, he was doing Jiggs was playing at a, uh, at a at a club in Newark, playing this you know this club in Newark and and uh, you know. Jiggs knew about me, you know, because, you know, my father told him, you know, my son plays saxes and that. And Jiggs told, Jiggs told him, uh, well, listen, bring your son down, you know, when he's, uh, you know, and, you know, just sit in. So that's what I did. I sat in with, with, with Jiggs, you know. Um, you know, he liked, you know, he liked my playing. And so um, he took my information. And then it wasn't until a little bit after that that uh, Jiggs became Jiggs became a staff a staff arranger at Sugar Hill Records. Okay. He became a staff arranger at Sugar Hill Records. So you know they you know he Jiggs wanted um, wanted some horns you know, and so he so he contacted he contacted me 
and um, you know, and you know, I, you know, since by since then, you know, I had formed chops, you know. So uh, I told him, yeah, well, I have a horn section, you know, this and that. And um, okay, well, you know, bring him down. So so we went down to the studio and uh, you know played on played on some things that Jigs did. He liked it, and um, and so that's how we got that's how we got involved. It was you know it was through him actually it was through him and um you know because then then you know and they were using the same they were like they were like motown you know they used the same rhythm section you know doug wimbish and they used the same rhythm section and so we became the horn section you know that they used so we played all all the horn stuff that they did in the studio that was that was us and that's that's how that came about would you uh sometimes cut multiple songs in a day or oh or yeah. yeah 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 uh we were and and we were up there. We were we were recording tunes, like uh, three four three four days out of the week, and uh, cutting on cutting tunes that uh, that never came out. You know, a lot of tunes, a lot of songs we played on never came out. We played on a lot of songs, you know. And um, like I said, some of them some of them came. You know, some of them came out and flopped. And so and they never really saw the light of day. Not really, because they you know they were limited. You know they had. I mean, she. They even had one uh, a rapping a rapping ventriloquist dummy. <laughs> that, they they yep yeah, uh, yep. Yeah, you know, that that become number one. Yeah, right. But uh, it it didn't it it went nowhere. You know, it didn't didn't catch on. So it it died it died at an early death. <laughs> so, but uh, but yeah. So that's how that's that's uh, that's how how that happened. You know. I got a, I got a list here. I just want to mention some of the uh, ones that jump out at me that you were on, so that viewers know. Um, Apache Sugar Hill Gang. Yeah. Uh, Funk You Up sequence, which is definitely one of my favorite Sugar Hill tracks. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, Scorpio Grandmaster Flash. Mm-hmm. Freedom Grandmaster Flash. White Lines. It's nasty. White Lines is not on this list, but you were on that one. Yeah. 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 Wow. That's one of the very biggest, right? The two biggest, I guess, would be the message in White Lines. Mm-hmm. Um, Breakdance, Electric uh, West Street Mob. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, yeah, all kinds of, those are like rap classics now. Yeah, yeah. That, the, happy, the birthday song, Happy Birthday. That That thing, you know. Uh, yeah, man, you know, this is really good. Did you interact with uh, Sylvia much? Yeah. Yeah, we did. She was, um, she was, you know, she was involved, you know, she, she was involved. I mean, I mean, she had a rough start because, you know, when she first put out Rapper's Delight, uh, you know, she was sued by Nile Rodgers, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, but, they, you know, I mean, they settled it. After, after, uh, you know, after Nile Rogers, you know, sued her and, and, and they worked out the, you know, the royalties and he, and he, and he started getting paid for, for good times, you know, um, everything was good. Everything was, everything was fine. You know, she, uh, and, and, and that's the, and that's the last time she did that. <laughs> that was the first time and last time she did that is taking a song and just taking a song that was already done, recorded. And you know, putting a rap over it, she didn't do that again. And you know, because that's because then you know the you know the the, the original you know she just just started recording original grooves, 
that were basically thought up by by Doug Wimbish and, and Skip uh, uh, and Jigs, you know. I mean, uh, you know, so so she didn't have to worry about copyright infringement anymore. Then, mm-hmm. ironically, sampling became the whole big thing. But yeah, yeah, Sugar yeah, Hill wasn't much into that yet. Yeah, no, not no, not no, not yet. But but the thing is, good thing is that you know they didn't have to because um, you know the grooves that 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 Jigs and and Doug and Skip were writing were they were they were hitting. You know they were you know they were hitting. So then, uh, you know, you were involved in so many other projects. Um, We can't certainly talk about all of them, but um, can you share with us maybe some other ones that um, happened, say, in the 80s that were really uh, especially memorable that you're proud of that stand out for whatever reason? Um. Well, a, well, when you started working with um, well, a couple of things. Well, first of all, uh, Philadelphia Philly International, Philadelphia International Records. You know, we lead with uh, Gamble and Huff. You know, we because um, uh, you know before we started working with them, they were working with well Don Ronaldo, you know, who did you know like the, you know the original stuff like the original Soul Train theme and 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 all of that, you know, and then. Um, they had a uh, they had a gospel label that was headed by a guy named Tony Beck, and so Tony, and it was because of Tony actually that we got involved with him because Tony had brought us in to play on uh, on an album by the Five Blind Boys, and so because of the energy that we had coming in, uh, Gamble and Huff heard it, and they said, well now that's that's the kind of energy that we need going forward on our on our record. So that's, we started working with McFadden and Whitehead, with the OJs, with Patti LaBelle, you know, uh, the Jones girls, you know, on that label. And um, that was, that was always a fun thing. And, and, and we, and we performed with, uh, uh, we did road stuff with uh, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. Did, did you work at all with Dexter Wanzel over there? No, and that's unfortunate, because I, I was, I was really a, a fan of, of, of his. Because of his, his arranging, you know, his, his writing and arranging, you know, because uh, Dexter Wanzel was always one of my favorites. And I, I always want, you know, I would love to have met him, but, but you know, I mean, we just we just never did with the work that we did up there. We never met him, but he's a uh, he's a great arrangement. I, I love his stuff. You know, I love his stuff. And then you know, and the other the, you know the other things that that, that we did, of course, you know, we got hooked up with the police. And uh, um, in uh, in in '81 uh, and '82, we toured with them. You know, and uh, that was a that was a whole that was a whole different that was a whole different level. You know, that's a whole different level. I mean, when we worked with when we when we recorded with the Rolling Stones, they were going to do uh, after the Undercover the Night album, they were going to do a short forty city tour, right? And but they 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 ended up not doing it because Jagger wanted to work on his solo LP, his solo record. And he couldn't do that while he was on the road, right? So, um, but for that tour, it was only going to be like maybe what a month and a half, maybe was going to be. They were going to pay us ten thousand dollars a week each, ten thousand dollars a week, right? Now prior to that, I mean you know we hadn't heard of that kind of money, 
But you know the stone, but the Stones at that time, you know, they were they were making a million dollars a concert, you know, and like that 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 kind of money was just foreign to us, you know. But 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 for groups like that, that's the kind of stuff, the kind of money that they made, you know. And uh, and that's why when we got with the police, you know, it was like, uh, you know, but the stone, but the stone, you know, you know, the Stones was after the police, but but but. With the police, uh, the time we were with the police, I mean, they were making um, they were making two hundred fifty thousand dollars per concert, right? For the for the three for the for the three of them, and I mean, but they were I mean, they were already rich anyway at the time that we got with them. That's what they were making at at the time, and not to mention all the stuff to, for merchandising and all and all the other stuff. But um, you know, that, well, that, the police that, was they were also MTV darlings. The police. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, they were, I mean, as big as they were here, they were, they were even bigger in Europe. I mean, they're a London-based band, you know, of course. And they, uh, they were like the Beatles. They were like the Beatles over there with, you know, you know, you know women fainting and st- girls fainting. Uh, you know, it was, it was it, it, over there, they were, they were huge. I mean, they were big here, but over there, they were. Fun- that, was, that was like the Stones 10 years prior. Yeah, 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 right. You know, and 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 that's the, and that th- with them, it was the first time that I played in front of the most people. I mean, because when we did the first Us Festival that they always had in San Bernardino, California, that was the uh, one that um, the that the, the guy from Apple, um, Steve Jobs. Uh, no, the other one. Oh, um, yeah, with the W last name. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Wozniak. Yeah, Wozniak. Steve Wozniak. Yeah. Right. He, he, you know, he's the one that 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 put that together. That created that. And that first that that first Us Festival, that, there was uh we played in front of 150,000 people, and that's the first time that I've ever played in front of 150,000 people. You know, because you know P P Funk, you know the arenas, you know they hold 20,000, 30,000, you know, like that. But you know the US Festival, you know, you know, just looking out and you just see a sea of heads, like as far back as you can go. You know, it's like it's it's <laughs> mind-boggling. You know, we we couldn't even enter through the roads. The roads because the roads were so congested. We entered uh, through help by helicopter, came in by helicopter because you just couldn't get, you know, you just couldn't get there by, you know, with the, through the roads. We never made it. Wow. <laughs> but, yeah. Um. On the um, Mick Jagger solo record, was that one produced by Rick Rubin? Um, no, um, it was. Uh, I think. I think the I think the first the first one was produced I think, by Arthur Baker. Okay. I think it was produced by Arthur Baker. The second one, I don't remember. I don't remember who. Maybe Rubin was uh, later on. Yeah, maybe so. I, I don't remember who produced the second one. Yeah, I think because Rubin was probably still busy with Def Jam at that time. Um, so, wow, Stones, Police, what else from the uh, 80s jumps out at you? Um, let's see, I'm, um, just trying to think, because... So you were like horns for hire, basically, right? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That's, basically what, that's basically what we were. I mean, Kind of like Tower of Power's horn section. Yeah, because with with uh, with the Stones, I mean, we had gotten hooked up with them because the lawyer that we that we that that we were working with at the time, Jeff Layton, 
he knew he knew the, the Stones lawyer. And um, and plus, uh, we, when we were with the when we were with the police, the, um, uh, Jagger heard us. Jagger heard us with the police when we were with the police because we were with the police in eighty one and eighty two. We did the Stones in eighty four. And Jagger heard us with the police at one of the, at one of the concerts uh, that we that we did here. Jagger was there and he heard us, right? But Jagger wasn't yet convinced to use us because he was still torn. But he was going to either use us or you know the group King Creole and the Coconuts. He was either going to use us or their horn section. So he was torn between them. So so Jeff so um, Jeff said, "Well, I'll tell you what," he said. I'll send you a I'll send you a, a record a, a record with 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 chops on it, and then and then you, and then and you listen because because you know Jagger you know he was a, he's very astute you know as far as what he what he wanted you know so he so he so he he figured that well he wanted to hear what how we would sound on record how we sound because he heard us live you know he wanted to know how you sound because you know once you know people sometimes sound different on live than they do on 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 record vice versa yeah right right so jack said i like the way they sound live i said let's hear more record so he listened and um he you know he he, he liked us he liked us better he liked our, he liked our vibe better you know and that's how like that's a lot of how we got by because when what with, with mariah carey uh we because we were with alicia at the time and uh randy jackson was talking to alicia and saying, yeah, on Mariah's Mar- Mar- next record, the Emancipation of Mimi album, on that record, Randy said, because uh, Randy Jackson was her musical director, so I, on, on that record, said, we're going to do, we're going to record the horns in New York. So Alicia said, well, listen, if you're going to record horns in New York, you need to use my guy. You need to use him. So, uh, so Randy said, well, okay. So um, now, Thing about this was that Randy recorded. He, there were horns already on the record. Yeah, he had recorded them in L.A. But the problem was he was doing the horns over because he liked the horn parts, but he did not like the way they were played. You know, they weren't they weren't gutsy enough. They didn't have enough grit. They weren't. You know what I mean? So, so that's that's where we came in. You know, and what we did, we played the same horn parts that were there. But we just played them with some more snatch, with a little bit more snatch, you know, and that's what he wanted. That's all and the that, difference. I mean, yeah, yeah. So we, all we did, we, we, you know, we played exactly what was there, but we just put more added, more attitude in it. And and I, and, and it makes me wonder. I'm wondering what the horn players that that did it. I wonder what they what they thought of it. <laughs> hey, know, they learned a lesson, hopefully. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, but uh, but you know that's how you know you know, and that's how we got with Philly International. The same thing is was the way that we played the stuff, you know, and 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 people will say, and it's, people say the same thing about P Funk. People say, well, Fred Maceo and them, Fred Fred Maceo, Kush and Rick, you know, they weren't the cleanest horn players in the world, but man, they was funky as hell, you know. And for what Parliament was doing, they were perfect. You know, there were kind of a, a, a of a a loose tightness or a tight looseness, however you want to say it. You know, but it's just something about it. The way that they played it made you forget that you know, there were a little wrong notes here and there. You know, but 
you know, the, the way that it made you feel, man, was. <laughs> I mean, in my opinion, nobody can solo funk and play around funk grooves like Fred or Maceo. Right, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it, and, it, and it doesn't take a lot of notes. Like I said before, it's 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 strictly a feel thing. And and, you know, and that's what I like, uh, like Gerald Albright. You know, I mean, I, I first met Gerald Albright when I was playing with Patrice Russia back in 77. I was playing in her band. We did a concert. We did a concert at Hollywood High School. And Gerald was a he was a high school student at that time, you know, saxophone, you know, in the high school student. And he and, and 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 at that concert, George Duke came and sat in. And you know that was a high time right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, George Duke came and sat in. And uh anyway, you know, after the show, Joel, you know, Gerald came backstage, you know, said, you know, he was like all wide-eyed, you know, right? And okay. Now Gerald Albright is a great player. I love I love his playing, man. He's he's a he's he's a great player, man. You know, I mean he 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 wouldn't remember me. He wouldn't he wouldn't remember me because I mean he, he was in high school at the time. He wouldn't if I went to him now, he wouldn't remember who I was. I'd have to tell him I was in Patricia's band when we came to Hollywood High School. But at any rate, I love Gerald's playing. He's a great player, but when it comes to but to me. Gerald can't play funk because, because a lot of sax players, they mistake staccato playing for funk, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, that's okay in some circles, depending upon what you want to do. Like, there's the Oakland funk, like the Tower of Power funk. That's, that's you know, that's a different kind of funk. More than staccato, like, yeah. Yeah, than, than Fred Maceo's kind of funk, you know? Now, to me, I, I mean, I grew up on Maceo's kind of funk, you know? Maceo was my mentor as far as funk goes. So as far as that kind of funk, that's the kind of funk that I feel is like uncut. Oh, what do you want to say uncut? But you know, to play that's not funk to me. Yeah, I agree. It's not. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of how Gerald plays to me. Not anything against his playing because you know the guy's a phenomenal player, and for what he does, that's that's what he does. You know, he's he has a niche what he does, but. You know, he... Grover you know, could play some fun. Huh? Grover Washington could play some fun. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's from the, you know, he, he's from that, that same that same school. It's not, it's not about staccato, you know. It's, it's, you know, you know, it's about bending, the bending of the notes for sure. You know, it, you know, it is. But it's, um, you know, but it's also other things. It's, it's, it's also knowing where that one is, you know, like I said before. Uh, Knowing where to where to fall off where to fall off on the notes at the end of the phrases, and it's you know I mean it's you know you're getting into all of that you know and that's that's sometimes that's what people mistake for you know for funk or what I call uncut funk or whatever whatever you know. Amen, amen. Let me let me ask you this, Daryl. In the '80s, was that sort of a tough time because? That was where the wave of like synthesizer came in to do a lot of the horn, what happened in the horn parts, and black music in particularly kind of uh, downsized in a lot of cases and moved away a lot from the real horns, and then rap came in too, and so that was kind of a challenging time to navigate as a horn player, probably, right? Yeah, yeah, it it it, it is. You know, you you you're constantly reinventing yourself in that you have to convince uh, producers. Uh, that what you 
will add to a song is a lot more than what the synth will add, you know, color-wise, you know. And, you know, you, you kind of have to convince, you know, producers of that. And, of course, the producers are looking at, well, you know, rather than hire four horn players, I can get one synth player, you know. But, you know, you're not going to get, you know, you're not going to get the same feel, you know. But, you know, I mean, it depends on the producer whether what what they're willing to sacrifice, you know. And, you know, some, I mean, you know, some, some, some producers only, you know, they'll only use real horns, you know, because they don't, you know, and, you know, some, they look at the budget and they say, well, you know, I'll make do with this, you know, and that, but, you know, you constantly, re- one of the things that, one of the things that I like to do, that I do with my horn section that I've done, all right, there's a drummer named J.D. Blair. J.D. Blair was Shania Twain's drummer for many, for many years, and he's a, he's a funk guy. You know he's a, he's a funk guy, you know, and he, you know, he would be he's he'd be like on playing behind Shania Twain, and and you know he'd have he he he'd look like he belongs in P funk, you know. Now imagine how that looks playing behind Shania Twain, and you sitting out there look, you know, you know, you know, looking halfway like Jerome Braley, but you know as far as far as his dress goes. But at any rate, um. I wanted I wanted to get work you know I I wanted to get to Shania Twain because I wanted to you know see about her using the horn section so I you know and and J you know I wanted to do it through JD since I know him, knew him now the point I'm trying to make is that what I had to do and the way that people think all right now I took uh, two of Shania Twain's songs that she recorded well that don't impress me much that song and there's another song called Kaching right. And uh, so I took that took that song in this in the studio, you know, put that song on one track, and on the other tracks, I wrote horn I wrote horn arrangements for that song. It doesn't have they didn't have the horn they didn't have horn arrangements on them, no horns on them, but I wrote horn arrangements for it. And and the point was so that Shania can hear what I could do on her material because it's one thing. To say, yeah, well, I played with the Stones and I played with the Police and I played with it. Yeah, that's fine. But I ain't the Stones and I ain't the Police. What can you do on my stuff? You know, that's what people want to know. What can you do for me? You know. So to that end, put put her song without the horns. You know, the way it was originally recorded on one track and the rest of the track. Put my horn arrangement and then put the tracks together and then mix it so that it sounds like I did horns on that song, right? And so did that with those two songs and, and through JD, JD got it, you know, JD got it to her and, uh, and she really liked it, but the timing was bad because at this time she was getting ready to, she was going through, uh, that thing with Mutt Lang. Uh, she, she, cause at the time she, she wanted to get off the road cause she wanted to, she wanted to have kids with Mutt Lang. Then during the time she was off, then uh, Mutt Lang had had the affair, you know, and all of that stuff. And then, the, you know, and the marriage fell apart, you know. And then, you know, next thing you know, you know, Shania's she she's not performing anymore, you know. But actually, she started she started she started performing, you know, uh, performing again because she's taking up she's doing a residency at, at one of the Las Vegas places. Uh, but at any rate, I mean, but I mean, the point I'm making is that's some of you know. Something that I did in order to, to to convince people of you know of what you have because nowadays horn players 
they really don't have too much of a, a frame of reference. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, they do a few, a few blips, a few blaps here and there, but nothing really, you know, nothing really substantial. You know, I mean, I mean, we grew up in the era of Earth, Wind and Fire and Cool and the Gang and all of that, you know, where horns had, uh, were making statements. You know, now, you know, it's a hit here and a hit there. You know, I mean, you know, we did a song that that uh, that Alicia wrote. We did a song, Keisha Cole, an artist, Keisha Cole. And uh, Alicia wrote a song for her. And, uh, you know, and she, you know, and we were her horn player, we were Alicia's horn player, so she wanted us to do horns on it, right? The whole song, we just hit, just, just, just blast, like, pow! And then, you know, like eight measures would go by, I mean, go pow again. And that's all we did for the whole record. Now, now look, technically, somebody that's uh, an artist that's looking for horns, they can listen to something like that. A 10th t- grade band student could do that. So that, so that's basically what they'll do. They'll go out and get get a horn player that had that's that's hasn't been playing too long, a young horn player that wants the, the, the experience of saying, wow, I played on this or I played on that, to play the simple simple thing rather than hire, you know, you know, professionals, you know, or rather than hire my horn section, they'll get they'll get three guys fresh out of high school and pay them, you know, pay them like five hundred dollars a week to go on tour, you know, or four hundred dollars a week to go on tour, and they'll gladly do it, you know, um, rather than you know pay me and my horn section what, you know, what we're worth, you know, and what we bring to the table. You know, because of budget constraints. And so, you know, I mean, you know, so that's what you did, what, you, what you're dealing with, you know, with that whole, that whole thing. Well, hopefully this will help get that uh, word out and spread the word for horns in general and their enduring uh, special important place in popular yeah. music and your horn section in particular. But, um, you know, I remember it reminds me of I saw the Ohio players come back uh, like in 1989 and they actually were touring without a horn section. They had a synth trying to fill in for the horns. And so if you can imagine the Ohio players material without any real horns, it yeah. was just, ah, uh, what a difference. You know, I would say compare that and you get a really good idea of how yeah. much and how important real horns are. Yeah. And you know, I, I, I always commend, you know, the rock and country because they've managed to stay very close to their roots. You know, because I say, imagine, imagine if you go to a concert to see ACDC, right? And you could you come into the concert hall, right? And anticipating the concert. And what's up there is two turntables. That's all you see, two turntables. And then when the concert starts, the lead singer, I don't know what the lead singer ACDC's name is. The lead singer comes right, out. Huh? Brian Johnson. Okay, that's his name. Okay, I didn't know what his name. Was. I have I happen to like ACDC's music. I, you I know, too. especially their, their guitar player uh, Angus Young. Yeah, Angus. I, that guy is a freaking monster, man. Yes. That guy's a monster. And Mike Hampton was playing like that when he was when he was twenty four <laughs> years old. You know what I mean? I mean that's how much of a you know that's how much of a, of a of a monster Mike Hampton was. But at any rate, Angus Angus Young is one of the best guitar players. That I that I ever heard. At any rate, so imagine two turntables and Brian coming out, and guy comes start spinning turntables and Brian singing to the, tur- to, the, to, the to the turntables. How do you think that audience is going to feel? 
You know what I mean? Oh, they're going to be irate. Right, exactly. They come to see, you know what I mean? But, but you know, in rock and in, and in country, I find, you know, they, they have real guitars, you know, real singers, you know, playing real stuff. Whereas in an R&B market, you know, and, and, and unfortunately, and, and R&B has had, the rich history that R&B music has had, even with that, in the R&B market, they, they come out and do that. But I also blame the audience also because they accept it. They, they accept it. You know, as long as it's selling, that's, 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 that's what they're going to do. So, Daryl, um, thank you so much for spending so much time. Man, these stories have been phenomenal. Just, you know, what a fantastic career you've had. And just on behalf of all the viewers and listeners, thank you for all the great music you've given us through the years. Uh-huh. A lot of gratitude. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And how can people keep up with, uh, you know, what you're doing? Well, um, uh, they can go to uh, website chopshorns.com. C-H-O-P-S-H-O-R-N-S.com. Um, and uh, you can keep up with us that way. Excellent. Thank you so much. Continued success. And thank you again. Oh, and Facebook also. Facebook, of course. Yep, yep, Chops, yep. Great. Okay, thank you. Thank you.